0: Well, I wanted to talk this morning, start this morning, about talking when Christina got to meet Dolly Parton. That's true. It's true. Christina has met royalty. Uh, did you know that Dolly Parton has a theme park? Yes. yes yeah, and it's called Dollywood in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is a very—it uh, it sounds like what it is—and the Smoky Mountains, uh, and uh, everybody speaks slow, and it's. Everybody eats amazing food. Um, Well, Christina worked at Dollywood for a summer, uh, I don't know, making kettle corn and doing whatever you do, pork, slinging pork rinds. Um, But she heard that Dolly was coming into the park. So Dolly apparently would visit the park Semi frequently enough, uh, and so her and her friend staked out where the tour bus was going to be, like waited for a long time to like behind probably what were barricades or something because you can't get too close to Dolly. Um, and they and when they saw Dolly, well, first of all, what, what did you do when you first saw Dolly? Well, she looked at us as she stepped off her bus. We were not supposed to be where we were. We were supposed to be working, when we were taking breaks. Oh uh, yes. How y'all doing? <laughs> and then, what was your reaction? I immediately start crying. <laughs> um, and my friend was a- my friend Ashley was able to say, "We're good. How are you?" And she said, "I'm fine. Have a good day." And they whisked her and her tiny little self off. She's very short, very small, and they whisked her off to do a meet and greet thing she was doing. But um, and I was still. Stopping, <laughs> weeping in the presence of country royalty yeah so she was there with her friend just like waiting to get a glimpse of Dolly Parton which you know is worth it especially if you're getting paid to do it apparently because you were working um, and I think this is very much like our story today oh although it's not about Dolly Parton sorry um, but it's about uh, making a grand entrance and uh, recognizing what Grand! what great, what authority uh, really is. So Jesus here is, and we're gonna learn this a bit today in this story, uh, he wants us to make sure that we don't miss him. And he's doing a very good job of this. I mean, how tragic would it have been if Christina stood there, uh, saw Dolly, and didn't even recognize her? And like just kind of waited for Dolly to come and realize, oh no, I missed Dolly. Or maybe even worse, if she saw Dolly Parton come off the tour bus and all her regalia and uh, then was like, yeah, that's pretty good, but maybe there's something better. Kind of waiting for something better to come out of that tour bus. That's been tragic. She waited the whole day for it. She's crying tears and sobbing for it. But this is also uh, how we come to Jesus. Because not recognizing the king is ignorance, okay? And we can, get, we can grow in that. But recognizing the king but looking for something better, that's just stupidity. And in both cases, in ignorance and stupidity, we wither away because we miss Jesus. But recognizing the king and following him, that's how we thrive as humans. That's how we're created to thrive. And Jesus doesn't want us to miss it. So for many of us here who are sitting here listening to this now, uh, Jesus has called us. For many of us, Jesus has made us new already. We've been given a new life. We've been energized with a power beyond ourselves. Our lives have been radically changed and we have a new orientation and a better purpose in life. But there's still parts of us that act like that old self who didn't know any better or that act like that old self uh, that saw the good thing and just kind of looked for something better. And those parts of our souls that do that will continue to wither away if we don't bring them to Jesus. So in a world where it really is so easy to wither away where we are now, Jesus is at work, so we will thrive. He doesn't want us to miss it, He doesn't want us to miss him, and so he puts it himself on kind of obvious display here. And this is so that we will see him, we will recognize him, but more than that, that we'll follow him and have our lives changed because of that as new people. So we're gonna get right um, uh, at the start of the story here where Jesus makes it plain that he is the authority in his kingdom. So the king is the authority in his kingdom. Uh, He is recognized as such, Uh, and you might have, uh, some Bibles even have a little heading up top that says like a triumphal entry or something along those lines. Mine says Jesus comes to, to Jerusalem as king. So there's some little level of like easily recognizable this is what Jesus is portraying himself as. And up until now in Mark... Uh, he, Jesus has, been, has made sure that people will stay quiet because Jesus has a perfect plan of how he wants these events to unfold and uh, a perfect timing and how to do that and so he, if he heals somebody he'll say alright don't tell anybody else or if he tells uh, people who he is it'll mostly be like a small group like just his disciples he's not publicly making himself known but that's different now he's in Jerusalem He's facing his death. He's, he's bringing things to a head. So there's going to be no secrets anymore about his identity or his mission is going to be put on display. Now, it says here that he um, rode, uh, rides a cult, uh, probably like a, a mule or a donkey or something like that. And there is a level of humility, I guess, in riding a cult or a donkey. And sometimes it's how we view Jesus as a, this like, humble king entering, entering Jerusalem like, very humbly. But that's not really how it works in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you're a king in Israel and you come into Jerusalem, you ride a donkey, you ride a mule, and you ride it covered with someone else's clothes, and you ride an animal that no one else is allowed to ride. This, tol- this cult was never ridden before. No one's allowed to ride the king's horse, the king's colt, mule, whatever the thing might be. And so this isn't really like humble and lowly. This is Jesus saying like, I am entering as the king that I am to my capital city even I'm in Zechariah nine. i shall put it on here for us, uh, says this about the Messiah. Rejoice, Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you riding on a cult. So Jesus is trying to make it very clear. It's like, what, is the, what, is, what does the Old Testament say about how the Messiah, how the king enters his capital city? It says this, oh, okay, so then therefore that's what I'm going to do. So he's making it very clear and the people are saying this word, Hosanna. Saying Hosanna. Hosanna means God saves. God helps. It's like, not only a description of God, but uh, a like it's it's like His identity, who He is. That's what He's about. But also can mean like God save us, God help me. So it's not only just talking about who God is, but it's talking about our uh, connection, our approach as we come to this God. And this is what the people are like saying to this. Kind of strong king entering his capital city. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It seems like the crowds are getting it. They're spreading clothes on the road so that the colt doesn't have to touch the ground like a symbol of holiness. This is how you treat a newly crowned king entering his capital city. It's exactly what you would expect. And what they're doing is they're quoting uh, Psalm 118 and that, that Hosanna passage there. was a Thanksgiving psalm talking about the king. So this is attractive for many people. Like Some people are like, yeah, this is great. I'm all about it. And where they're right is that he's the king. That's who he is. But also, they're probably wrong a bit because uh, he's not the kind of king that you think he's going to be. It's surprising. I mean, when we previously went through Mark 1 through 8, we uh, last autumn, the kind of headline was like jesus is a surprising king because he doesn't come in the ways that we expect he comes in ways that are very unexpected often and what we're going to see is in a very short amount of time from here these crowds who are praising him are going to be calling out for him to be crucified so the crowds don't quite get it but they get it probably more than most they see jesus for who he is and there isn't any room now to just see jesus as a nice guy in sandals Like, oh, who's that guy, Jesus? Oh, yeah, he's the guy who's kind of cool, who wears the sandals and hangs out and makes people good. Like, that's just not how it works. Jesus is saying, I'm the king. You do with that what you will. You can be part of my kingdom or not. And the people who are not excited about being part of God's kingdom are the other spiritual leaders. We see them, look at uh, verse 18. It says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this this is when Jesus is kind of like talking about the temple, which we'll get to in a moment. They, so they're seeing what Jesus is doing, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, and the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, amazed doesn't necessarily mean that they're totally on board. just means they're kind of like astonished, in awe, and shock of the way this guy is teaching. So it's, it's attracting some people. Some people are saying, Hosanna, praise God, God you saved. Some people are like, how can we kill this guy? Because this is bad news for us. So why is this good news for us, though, for, to hear about Jesus coming into his kingdom? Why is this good news for us, really? Well, I think all of us are always searching for some kind of good authority. We're always on the search for authority. We may not look like it because we're also very cynical about authority, but I think we are. So when religion gets lost, something else will take its place. There's no surprise politics is such an important thing for us. Like when, Because well, who's going to fix this world? I mean, also, it's no surprise that political fundamentalism has taken over. I mean, basically, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there were lots of religious fundamentalists. Now we have a lot of political fundamentalists. You, couldn't, you can't talk about uh, politics in the same way you can uh, religion. Or vice versa, you can't talk about religion the same way you can talk about politics. Otherwise, we'd all be fundamentalists, basically. But basically, in all of this, when we talk about politics or whatever, we are all seeking who's going who's to fix this. We all see broken things in this world. We all see broken systems in this world. And we're like, this is not right. We have our high sense of justice, which is good. There's something broken here. Who's going to fix this? Who's going to make this right? Who's going to solve our problems? Who will save us from X, whatever the thing might be? The Bible has a word for this. It's called salvation. That's what salvation means. Who's going to save us? Rescue. We're on the search for that. Now, some believe rescue comes from a power within us, searching for our true selves and living that out. Some believe it's in the power of community, of people coming together in in our kind of human power and living that out, working together for the greater good. Some believe it's power itself. And the more power you have, the better it is, no matter how you get it. But all of us are searching for someone or something to put what's wrong right. So we're all searching for the authority that Jesus is presenting himself as. And when Jesus comes in, Crowned as the king that he is, with all the power to see this world new and the good to actually make it happen. We're there in the crowds, and how are we gonna respond? Are we gonna shout out Hosanna? Or are we gonna wish him dead? If we would rather not have Jesus around, our lives are much easier if that's the case, by the way. We can just kind of continue on. If we would rather not have Jesus around, how do you not have Jesus around? Well, you like you functionally kill him in the easiest way possible sometimes being with religion. It's easy to do that in the church. So the question is, how are we going to respond to the king's authority? There is no question that Jesus, about himself, believes that he is the Messiah, he is the king. So there's no room to believe, though Jesus is a good teacher, but all that stuff about Jesus saying that he's like the savior of the world, and that was all like later on put on, like that's just not true. Like there's no document that, historical document that has ever attested to that. It's just false. So Jesus presents himself as who he is. We have to deal with that, I think. Do we want to follow that or do we want to reject that? And there are consequences either way. So that's the, king, uh, the king's authority calls for us to make a decision either way. Secondly, what we come up to um, in this story here in Mark 11 is uh, that the king uh, purifies his kingdom. The king is doing stuff. What kind of stuff is the king about? Well, the king is about purity. Purity is about like a oneness, like not uh, not disconnected, not having a bunch of disparate parts working together that don't make sense together. It's about one single thing. So Jesus' grand entrance, if you notice, is kind of like falls flat. Look at um, uh, verse 11. So Jesus entered Jerusalem. There's kind of like fanfare. I'm th- thinking like confetti getting sh- shot out of cannons, things like that. He enters Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. So what does he do? He looks around and goes home, like, uh, okay, like, what's the deal with that? It's like, oh, yeah, cool, um, it's getting kind of late. We should go, probably go to sleep. Like, he's not, he's just not making a big deal out of it. It's very strange. I think the reason why is because he's basically setting up what's, what he's about to do next. Jesus knows what he's going to do next. And so he sets up this grand entrance um, to talk about this fig tree in the temple court thing. Now, um, as the king enters uh, his temple... What does he see? The, the way that Mark tells a story, and we've talked about this last year, uh, he uses this method called a sandwich, or other people call it a sandwich. He didn't call it a sandwich. I wonder what a Mark sandwich would be like. I don't even know if they had sandwiches then. Um, but it's in like uh, in nerdy theological worlds, we call it a Markan sandwich. Basically you have the start of one story, another story, the ending of that first story. And the the bread, the outside, teaches you how to interpret the inside story. So Mark is basically telling us here's the main story and I want you to understand this story by giving you these outside pieces. So fig tree gets cursed, Jesus kind of cleans out the temple, fig tree withers and dies, or at least they see the fig tree dead. And so how are we going to interpret that middle story of Jesus with the temple? Well that fig tree is going to tell us a lot. That's how Mark t- uh, kind of tells his stories. So just to maybe recap jesus is walking he's hungry Sees a fig tree it's out of season the figs the tree isn't producing figs no surprise there but he curses it and the disciples hear it they're like well that's weird jesus doesn't tell what's going on then he goes to the temple and he sees uh, people carrying merchandise in and out he sees money changers the reason why money changers would be there is uh, people are going to daily sacrifice for their sins in the temple, and uh, if you didn't have an animal yourself, you'd go to the temple, you'd buy an animal, and you'd sacrifice it. So there's like a lot of money getting changed there. And then uh, Jesus doesn't, we'll talk about that, why Jesus doesn't like that. So he doesn't like that. He throws all those people out. It's like punk rock Jesus, overturning tables, like, you know, putting graffiti everywhere. And then you uh, you come back to the fig tree, and the disciples see, see the fig tree's withered. It's dead. It's no, it's no longer there anymore. They're like, whoa, that fig tree you cursed like, isn't alive anymore. That's crazy. And then Jesus goes to talk about prayer. But we're just gonna stick with the fig tree, temple fig tree story. Um, what are we to think of the filling? If that's the bread of this fig tree, what are we to think of that filling? I think one of the things is that Jesus, because he's about oneness, he's about purity, wants to put an end to hypocrisy. Jesus has come to put an end to hypocrisy. And also, we'll see in a bit, he's come to put an end to the temple. And he's basically giving us a new way to live. So the high, these high priestly families that came around during this time, they had control. They eventually, they didn't to begin with, but eventually they got control over the temple's money. They got control over the temple's sacrifices, all the things that were going on. And they were definitely guilty of corruption. You only have to read the end of Mark and realize, oh yeah, the temple system wasn't quite pure. It was a little bit corrupt because they're trying to work with the political system to kill a guy for no reason. And then Jesus calls them a den of robbers. So, okay, so they're corrupt. Den of robbers, normally they're not very honest people. A whole den, not just a robber, but a whole den of robbers. That's that's corrupt. So the people that God is creating for himself, his kingdom, which is different than this temple he's encountering Jesus's kingdom is about prayers over prophets this manly kingdom this like religious kind of kingdom is always about prophet prophets over prayers so Jesus goes into his father's house as the king in his capital city and he sees the hypocrisy and he is not okay with it he's calling it out if you ever have had a problem with hypocrisy and hopefully you have because we all come in contact with it everyone is a hypocrite in one way or another and you have that sense of injustice kind of rise up, well, Jesus cares more about hypocrisy than you do. He cares way more about hypocrisy than you do. Jesus does not like hypocrisy. So if you're like, oh, I don't like the church because it's full of hypocrites, like, yeah, Jesus doesn't like it for that reason too. I'm with you. Like, we're trying not to be that. That's why we're growing together. So if you don't like hypocrisy, you're, you're in, in good uh, in good standing. Um, but here, in this kind of uh, hypocritical uh, religious situation, the people there who are working there are all about Uh, Prophets over prayers. And Jesus is about prayers over prophets. These are representing two kind of different ways to live a for profit mindset and like a for prayer kind of mindset. A for profit mentality is concerned with these questions What's in it for me? What's my benefit? How can I get others to do what I want? You can look completely good and religious on the outside, like these people did. These were the religious leaders. You can plead completely good and be corrupt on the inside. You can be a choir of angels on the outside, but a den of robbers on the inside. Jesus does not like that. He cares more about what's going on inside than on the outside. A for-profit mentality, though, is limited because it's human-orientated, so it's limited. It's limited by the questions of, like, what can I do myself? Or what are my strengths? Or what are my hopes, my fears? And then we organize our life around those things. So Jesus is against hypocrisy. That's great. We're all about that. Okay. That confronts each one of us, though, because we all have incongruent parts of our hearts. We say we're like this, but in reality, we kind of do that, especially when no one's watching or in our heads. Every human has hypocrisy living inside of us. Jesus rids us of this and gives us a new way to live. We don't have to live uh, stricken by that. But there's also something deeper going on. So Jesus does not like hypocrisy, doesn't like money being changed over like his worship, and he, he says this, uh, his uh, his house will be a house of prayer. But he's doing more than just to, uh, to protest against corruption and hypocrisy. He's actually doing a lot more. Because if Jesus stops the flow of money in the temple by stopping people from buying sacrifices, how will the temple continue to exist? If money can't be exchanged, sacrifices will end, as will the priesthood. So Jesus isn't actually about purifying the temple. It's not about purifying. So if you have a heading where Jesus purifies the temple, it's kind of wrong. That's a wrong comment to make. He doesn't care about purifying the temple. He cares about purifying us. He calls us temples. No longer is it a place. A church isn't a building. A church isn't a meeting. A church is a group of people. So Jesus' work will actually destroy the temple, He's not like, temple, I could take it or leave it. No, he's actively working to destroy the temple. He wants to destroy the temple because he wants to purify us. We are his kingdom, directly, without the need of anything else to go in between. As one commentator put it, the temple's glory days are coming to an end, and people are not too happy about it. So Jesus protests the temple because he's offering something more than a for-profit kind of mentality. There's something better than relying on yourself. He sacrifices. He's protesting our most likely sacrifices that had to be made every single day, nonstop, over and over and over, going to the temple, buying a dove or whatever you could afford and sacrificing it. Grace would be limited to what you could do. And we have the same kind of daily sacrifices in our world. Hopefully you're not out slaughtering doves or whatever you might do, you crazy people. Um, But you think, oh, if I do one good thing, then I deserve another. Kind of like, you know, my own version of karma. Or you serve here, but only if there's something in return, you know, whether that be in your job or whatever. If you don't perform well for God that day, or if you make that sin mistake that you really like struggle with that day, you think he's disappointed with you and now you have to kind of move on and grovel until he's happy with you again. That's just not how it works. That's how the temple works. We are not living in the temple. Instead of daily sacrifices being made, instead of priests in a temple constantly having to stand and offering sacrifices to God, instead of doing your good thing for the day in order to be right for God, this king is going to give a sacrifice so big, so effective, no other sacrifice will need to be made. Now the fig tree makes a little bit more sense. It's not the season for figs, and yet Jesus curses the tree. Not because it should be growing more fruit out of season, he curses it because it can't grow fruit in our season. It's not meant to. It's done. It's away with. It's withering. The season for figs is over, and a new season has arrived. So winter isn't coming. Winter is over. It's a new season, and the king doesn't want us missing out. That means Jesus is enough, like full stop. It's not Jesus plus the things that I do. No, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to destroy. Is Jesus is enough. Now, sometimes maybe you feel like you aren't enough and you'd be right because you're not. None of us are by ourselves. We are incomplete without Jesus because we were made for a life that's bigger than ourselves. And Jesus allows us to step into that because he's enough and through him, we can be as well. But even though Jesus has come, we're prone to always head back to that for-profit mentality, of like, how can I really do something to make myself feel better about myself? But if we recognize Jesus' authority, he will not let us live halfway. He does not like that hypocrisy kind of way of living. He's gonna save us from the hypocrisy of that profit oriented life. Now, sometimes he will overturn tables, and that actually could be a good thing, because sometimes those tables need to be overturned. Sometimes it happens in our life circumstances, Sometimes that happens uh, just in our own hearts of what we're dealing with. Now, having a table turned over isn't actually the worst thing to happen. The worst thing to happen would be having your tables turned over in your heart, whatever that might be, and then continuing on as if it wasn't. That would be the worst. Missing out on grasping how radically new we can be through what Jesus has done. Otherwise, we get comfortable in our hypocrisy and we kind of grow cold and we kind of grow stale. So the question for us is, as we're following this king, if we're going to respond to his authority, when he turns our tables over, because he will, because we're always going to be messing it up, when he does, are we going to continue living as we did before? Or are we going to ask the spirit, through Jesus' spirit, who lives inside of us, like, what do you want me to do? I'm sorry. So we talked about Jesus having authority and how he's using that authority for our good, um, but Jesus also has the power. It's his kingdom. He's the one who has the power. So if the king has the power, that means we don't rely on ourselves first. We get the king involved. That's what prayer is, getting God involved in our life. This is actually really great news for us because we get to be relieved of carrying the burdens that really only God can carry in our lives. We're never meant to carry everything ourselves. And if, if, if we're relying on God's power to work through us, that means we get to just be humans as we're meant to be relying on God to come through for us. So this comes up when Jesus is turning over our tables and he wants people to live in a prayer mindset, not in a prophet mindset. Prayer goes against our own efforts, which is why it's difficult. It makes us rely on Jesus, which is why it's difficult. It's good for us though. It also means we get to be part of change above and beyond what's possible beyond our, our own efforts. Because if we're only focusing on what we can do through our own strength, we will always be limited. Prayer draws us into something bigger, draws us into God's mission above ours. Uh, he says this as he's kind of like chucking the tables over, punk rock Jesus kind of yelling out, my house will be a, called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made a den of robbers. So a house of prayer for all nations, which Jesus is really concerned about. And later on, after Peter's like, Jesus, you, uh, you cursed that fig tree. Like, whoa, that's a little bit scary. What in the world? And Jesus immediately, he doesn't say like, oh yeah, I cursed it because of this. Jesus immediately says, Unlike this fig tree system, have faith in God. Versus, start in verse 22. He says, uh, have faith in God, he answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So only if we have faith will we pray boldly. Ooh, there we go. Faith in the King. There we go. No one got electrocuted, right? Very right. We're good. We're good. Um, if, you, if we end up with the same amount of people alive after the service as we did before, I think we're doing all right. So Only if we have actually faith in God, in this kind of God who's entering his, king, his kingdom in this kind of power, that only if we have faith in God like that will we pray boldly. If you have an anemic prayer life, it probably means you have a lack of faith, which is okay, just like, ask God for more faith. We all have areas where we need to grow. You might be struggling with believing that God is as powerful uh, as he says he is. Or maybe that he's as good as he says he is. Or maybe you, you get that he's powerful and good, but he's not actually powerful and good to you. Maybe you struggle with that. All that is a lack of faith. All that leads to a, like a, a weak prayer life. If we don't believe God's powerful or good, or good for us, why would we pray to a God like that? We pray to a God who's, who's powerful and good and works as good for us. And that leads to a flourishing prayer life. Only if we get Jesus's authority, like his identity as a king, will we really get what prayer is about so weak prayer life means we need to look to Jesus more. It doesn't mean you should try harder and spend more time in prayer. We should probably all spend more time in prayer, but that's not the answer. The answer is looking to Jesus more because he's the king. He's the one who's going to teach us where we need to grow. Maybe we've seen him and, and kind of pretending like we didn't recognize him, or maybe we haven't even recognized him because we're not even looking for him. Are we still off looking for something better? Are we looking for Jesus? So big, bold prayers don't come from small gods. The only way we can pray for God to act in big ways is if we understand how big of a God he really is. I asked Colin this morning, uh, who is God? We kind of had these like, questions and answers stuff. I think mostly because the Amazing Kids ministry, he put it in his own words, which is great. Colin said, he's a big person who rescues us, I think is what he said. I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. I should have that definition. But he knew like, he's a big person. Like, God is big. He's a big person. He gets it. The only way we can pray for God to act in big ways is if we understand how big of a God he really is. Now, Jesus wants to have us to have faith in that kind of God. That's why he's showing himself to be this king. This is the God who is in power here, and he's created a way to talk to him. That's insane. We can talk to him. From these verses, we learn a few things about prayer. Uh, and I, I, just if we look a little bit closer here. First, uh, maybe two big kind of categories. It does us good prayer, and does others good. Maybe that's stating the obvious. But it does us good, because if we're relying on God like we've already talked about, that's obviously a good thing. I mean, prayer is basically a protest of, of the, this broken way this world works. The world says you must work for it yourself. Prayer comes out of the reality that we, through Jesus, we've already been giving, been giving everything so we can trust in him to bring us through. Another area that's good for us is as we pray, we're drawn to forgiveness ourselves. You know, Jesus talks about that later on Uh, In verse um, 25, it says, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So as we're in prayer, we realize, ah, I kind of have a hard heart in this area. Why? Oh, yeah, because I hate this person. I don't forgive them. And it helps you work through that. Prayer is like a constant kind of walk. It's not like a one-time thing, yeah, I forgive you next, especially if it's a difficult thing. It's a kind of constant thing you have to live with and walk over time. So we're drawn to walk in forgiveness for others as we pray, as well as we are understanding on another level, as we understand the depths of our own brokenness, how much the Father has forgiven us. So forgiveness isn't a one-time thing. It's ongoing from the Father. It needs to be ongoing for us as we go to others. We won't get that really well if we're not praying. So it's good for us. It's also good for others. So the kind of change that we want to see in this world isn't possible by human effort alone. The kind of real change we want in the people that we love is not going to happen through us doing good things or loving them well in our own power. For our broken souls to be reformed and made new, this is a work that only God can do. And so when we pray for others, we're asking the most powerful, most loving person to exist that has ever existed to get involved into someone's life. There is no more loving thing we could do for someone than to spend time in consistent prayer for them. Nothing. Nothing. When we hear of a problem, we say, oh, I'll pray, but I wish I could do more. I get that. I probably say it all the time because I'm such a good human-orientated kind of guy. But more than asking like the king of creation to help, like, more than the one who made the stars and made the universe and who's every single detail of our diverse planet. I mean, Psalm 8 says, like, this is how God made the heavens, like little flicks. How easy is it for God to do whatever he wants? and And we think... That is like the least we could do. Surely that's the most we could do is bring people before a God like that. And this God not only created all this, he stepped into our story and he knows what it's like for us to walk. It is not far in for God to understand how difficult life is. Your God knows better than we do. If only we could do more. Ah, oh, surely that's the best thing we could do for people. And Jesus says that his house the place of worship will be called a house of prayer for all nations. If he's talking about us as a church, you as a family, or even you as an individual, would you be defined in that way? Like, Really, I'm like, I'm all about prayer. That means for any of us who aren't Jewish, by the way, if it's talking about all nations, this is really good news because it's talking about us, House of Prayer for All Nations. We're part of that all nations who are coming in. God's kingdom is broad. It's welcoming to everyone who wants to follow him, regardless of their background, regardless of their political belief, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, ethnicity, class, if you're rich or you're poor. All of us are invited to a life connected to a king, and all of us are invited to surrender to this king because we all have brokenness we're bringing to this king but this king is a good king, and he gives out blessing to all who want to follow him. So prayer is good for others in that we should be praying for those that we love to come to know Jesus, and for those who do know Jesus to grow in their love for Jesus as we understand Jesus' love for us. It's also good for people groups and nations outside of our own, because God has a global mission much bigger than Manchester, much bigger than England, a global mission to redeem people, and through prayer we get to be a part of that. That's why I'm super happy and excited that josh and rachel are hosting their monthly um prayer nights for unreached people groups when is the next one next week week. there you go that's one way that we as redeemer are trying to to be obedient and be a house of prayer for all nations i mean if the king has the power and we recognize it and we surrender to it we get to be fruitful regardless of our season If we live by a prayer mindset instead of that prophet mindset that we get mired down by, we get to see God at work in good times and in bad times, and God can work regardless if we're feeling it or not. If we seek the long-term, slow work of prayer, oftentimes it feels like a labor, it's a work, it's a long discipline. If we seek that over the short-term, quick, kind of fix-it-myself way, we can be like Psalm 1-3. It says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither not like the fig tree, not like the temple, not like the prophet mentality. They're not gonna wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, whatever they do prospers because they're working for the king. The king has a power in his kingdom. In this kingdom, there is fruit regardless of the season. So we can be patient, we can be humble, we can be kind, we can be joyful. Those are the kind of fruits that we get to live out. That's what a fruitful life is like. It's not like this withered and dead fig tree. And Jesus hears our cry of Hosanna. Our cries are saying, God, save us. Like Especially if we're coming to prayer, who feels like you're doing really good in your prayer life? Nobody really does. We're like I can always spend a lot more. We all, even people who might be like gargantuan prayer warriors, always like, I could probably stand to pray a little bit more. All of us feel like that. And this isn't like a do better, pray more kind of thing. This is, we still, through that, we get to say, God, save us. Like Our prayer life isn't great, so save me. Help continuing to save me through this. And God always answers yes. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. He's, he, he, we can be sure to always be fruitful because he's the one who has the power. And he never forsakes us, so we can be sure to always be fruitful because he's the one who has the power. And I can't say it enough, even to myself or maybe to you all, like it's not about us actually. It's all about Jesus. And it doesn't mean, oh, so I should work good so that Jesus can be enough. No, like it's all about Jesus actually. And Jesus loves to bless those that he leads. It doesn't mean we get to stay the same. A lot of our tables are gonna be overturned. That's much better life. And so all this means that a disciple is someone who is growing in dependence on Jesus in everything. So if I was to look at your actions, what you do with your life, could I tell that you were depending on Jesus? And prayer life is a big part of that, but there's other things as well. Or would I see that basically through how you act that your actions in life that basically you depend on yourself? How would someone be able to tell? In the places right now where you're thinking about where you depend on yourself, what would a small step in faith look like? It could just mean to pray once a week for 10 minutes if you don't have some kind of regular prayer thing. That's great. Set a notification on your calendar so you'd stick to it like it's something for your job, if you're good at sticking to stuff for your job. Set a timer on your phone for 10 minutes. Be like, all right, let's do 10 minutes. I can do that. I can do anything for 10 minutes. This is, I don't know why I'm telling this story, but there was a, uh, I was in a wedding once and it was really hot in Florida in the summer and I was wearing all sorts of clothes because to uh, stand up there with you know all the suit and everything and it was horrible. I remember actually thinking, there are people who have endured torture for longer than I'm standing up here this, so I can do it. So it's like, I, if I could stand 10 minutes of standing up here, then it means I can probably stand 10 minutes of prayer. Even if it feels like a labor, even if it feels completely horrible inside, that's fine. You don't have to love it. You just have to actually follow through and try and be obedient. Go to Josh and Rachel's for prayer next week. Uh, pray for the people in your core group or your missional community. Pick two, two people you know who aren't believers and pray for God to bless them to show how you can serve them. What about this, if God was to, to say yes right now to every single person that you're praying for to become a believer who is not yet, how many prayers would be answered? Are we praying for them? Would there be loads of people who just came to faith? Would it just be like a few? How many people are we really seeking God for? Uh, I am not great at prayer because I love depending on myself. So I need to put things in my life to help out. So if you're one of those people, one thing I've found really helpful is an app called PrayerMate. I'm like holding this up as if you can see it out there, but you can't. Um, it's uh, just an app that they have on whatever kind of phone that you might have, and it just helps me actually do the thing that I want to do. It helps me to pray. It doesn't make it less spiritual because you have a list. It's actually like helpful if you're actually praying more. So Every week, I pray for everyone in Redeemer. I have a list. I pray through it. I don't have to think of, who should I pray for now? Like It just tells me what to pray for, and I do it. Every week, I pray for people close to us who aren't believers yet. Every week, I pray for people who aren't yet known to Redeemer, who I don't even know yet, so then when we get to know them we've already been praying for them so that we could be a loving welcoming family this is coming from a guy who does not have a great prayer life so i can do it i know you can endure those 10 minutes as well i know you can do it the question really is though why don't you pray i know you'll say what i say oh i'm just too busy and that's a lie i lie all the time about that the real reason is what jesus brings up we don't have faith we don't believe god is who he says he is we don't believe he's powerful we don't believe he's good We don't believe he works at power and good for us. Those are all lies from hell, and you can tell them to go back there. There's nothing more Jesus could have done to demonstrate his love for us. There is nothing avoided in our behalf. He didn't do us to force us. He does not do us to guilt us. He's not trying to twist our arms into it. He's not disappointed with you. He's doing this to rescue us from a lesser life because God is the one who saves. It's what he does, Do we really want that, or do we want to stay the same? Do we really want those that we love to know this, or does a touch of possible awkwardness scare us away from ever bringing him up? Jesus invites us to surrender to his authority and his power. Sometimes we would rather be in control than thrive. We often make that trade-off. Or sometimes we'd rather live in guilt than surrender. We make that trade-off often. We choose to hold ourselves back and we stay stuck rather than move forward in our lives. We might need Jesus to overturn some tables inside of us. So Jesus overturned the tables of the temple to set up a new table. Those old sacrifices, are done. The old way of life is done. Our own goodness that we bring is done. Our own passions and everything, everything you really care strongly, those are great, but that's not gonna bring you to Jesus. It's done, we don't rely on those. We need something more. So Jesus invites us to this new table. And the invitation reads, there's an old way of doing things. There's an old way of relying on yourself. Step into the grace of living in God's kingdom where the king is at work. He isn't dead. He's alive. He's ascended on the throne. The king is on his throne now, even while we're sitting here. He's ruling this world, even though it might be hard to see it. And Jesus gave us tangible ways to remember what he did for us. The bread represents his body. And Jesus came to take everything wrong and set it right. The first step in that was to take everything wrong upon himself. Jesus is the suffering king, not seeking power for himself, but using his power for us. He died for it, and he died for us. This is gluten-free, by the way. So he died even for those who are (laughs) gluten-free. And the cup represents Jesus' blood. He put death to death, and in his own power, he raised himself back to life. And as the ruling king, he offers us the cup of new life. And as we eat and drink, we remember Jesus' death, and we also get to embrace Jesus' power in our lives. And as we come up and eat the bread, uh, Don't get a small little piece, and sometimes it's like, how small of a piece of bread could I possibly get? It's supposed to represent a meal, and this loaf is so big I can't even fit it on this plate. Uh, So take a hunk of bread, dip it into the wine, and get like a mouthful, like chew on it. Make it feel like a piece of bread instead of like a little speck of dust or whatever in your mouth. Uh, Now, as we do this, we're gonna sing, and we'll come up here and we'll be singing. Um, Don't be trying to sing and eat at the same time, spurting your bread all over the place. But take that as an opportunity as you're eating, as, you, as we're eating and drinking together to, to hear the sound of the kingdom, hear the sound of your, our other brothers and sisters singing in the presence of Jesus. This is what the sound of the kingdom is like. This is what we get to embrace together. And this is just a small part of it. It's just a few hours on a Sunday. This reality continues, even though we don't often feel it. Reality continues throughout the week. It comes through in unlikely places. We're made up of people from unlikely people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And what we get to do as we sing together is create a sound of relying on King Jesus in all that we do. So if you've surrendered to this good King, Jesus invites you to this table. You don't have to be a member here at Redeemer. If you haven't yet made good on Jesus' invitation though, please don't come up. So for all of us, As we walk up here, what we're doing is we're walking the path of repentance, realigning our lives with Jesus, not relying on ourselves. And if it's your first time or 100th time up here, we're saying, as much as I need food and drink, I need you, Jesus. Hosanna. God save. God save me. And through his work, we can see him for who he is, not holding out for something better, not missing him, but actually find him and see him as the one with the authority and power in our world and the one who's making all things new. Let me pray.